Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Hello friends, I hope this finds you well. Um, I'm Chris Thrall, I'm a former Royal Marine. And before we go any further, can we just check everybody at home can hear me? If somebody can, can put in the chat, uh, that would be excellent. Hello Brooke, we're looking slightly misty on YouTube, I'm not sure why, but thank you Alfie. So. Yes, I'm Chris Rule, former Royal Marine, now the host of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Uh, tonight we've got a great live show for you. We've got a fantastic guest. Um, but first, a bit about me. Okay, that was a little bit about me when I did, what was it, the quadruple Ironman for my 50th birthday to raise awareness of this alarming rate of uh, veteran suicide. That we've got this epidemic sweeping the country. Um, let's have a little look at a bit about my guest. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Damien Lewis. Damien, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Good to be back. Good. Can our friends at home let us know? Can you hear both myself and Damien okay? That'll be great. I'm sure they can, so we can carry on carry on talking. Um, did you enjoy the podcast? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to say, did you enjoy the podcast? But I, I think you were a, you were away when it when it premiered, weren't you? You were out doing something. I, I had to take my fifteen-year-old uh, and seventeen-year-old to karate. They they've been locked down all all summer, and the dojo opened up for the first time in, I don't know, six months or so. So I had to take them. But I've seen it since then. Yeah. Yeah. Good. No, family comes first, Damien. Always. Um, so uh, yeah, we can we can all learn a lesson from that. And we were going to talk, weren't we, about your latest book? Can you introduce it? Yeah. So um, this is the book. It's uh, SAS Band of Brothers. Uh, it's literally just um, that's just dropped through my letterbox today. So and it comes out on the 29th of October. Um, so in a few days' time. Really glad it's out because of course there's been a lot of publishing delays due to COVID. So um, that's a real achievement. It's, it was a real, we were running four Ironmans, mate, to get that book out. I'll tell you, that was tough. <laughs> so, um, yeah, really glad it's here, um, just in time. And the story, basically, it's, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of D-Day, the big worry is that, um, you know, Hitler's going to send his armoured uh, divisions to the D-Day beaches and drive the Allies back into the sea to destroy those beachheads. And so... Paddy Main, commander of one SAS, and Lieutenant Colonel Franks, Brian Franks, commander of two SAS, send into France, deep behind the lines, small bands of SAS men to to attack the German supply lines to hit those armoured columns on the roads and on, on the rail and basically stop those reinforcements from getting to the DA beachheads. And it's it's that's the opening point of the book, and it follows one patrol of 12 men drop deep behind the lines who carry out some extraordinary missions, mastermind one of the most dramatic escapes I've ever heard of and written about, um, ever. Uh, but finally, our, our, 
betrayed and um, are captured by the Gestapo. That's kind of the, the, the broad brushstroke of the story. Wow. Well, first off, massive congratulations on getting another book out. And it's um, it's a significant effort to um, to write one book, let alone the the, the uh, huge number of <laughs> publications you've got out now. So really, really well, well done, Damien. And um, I'm guessing for our younger friends watching, D this was D-Day, right? Um, yeah. S 6th of June? 6th of June, 44, yeah. 6th of June, 1944. It was basically the Allies pushing to Europe. Am I, is that... A... Yeah, you know, the, the, the opening of the Western Front. So it was, it was, I mean, of course, there had been the Allied landings in Southern Europe and Italy before that, but the really big push, what everybody had been waiting for were the D-Day landings, which were to liberate Western Europe from you know, not the control of Nazi Germany and bring about an end to the war. So this was the big deal. This is what we'd been preparing for for three years and the largest ever um, amphibious operation in history. And it could not be allowed to fail. And the biggest worry was that Hitler would send his armour to the beaches and drive us back into the sea. And it would be over almost before it got started. And I guess we'd already been stung then, had we not, by Dunkirk, what happened at Dunkirk. Yeah, of course. You know, the last time we had, uh, you know, ground troops on the ground in France or Belgium or, or, or Holland was uh, in 39 and 40. And they were they were driven out by the German Blitzkrieg, this this new form of lightning, lightning war, which is what Blitzkrieg means, using fast moving armoured columns, dive bombers, aircraft, air cover. It, it completely uh, flummoxed Allied commanders. And of course, was the first time ever that airborne forces were used so the germans launched their attacks on the belgium forts massive fortified uh you know bunkers and forts in belgium and that's how they got around the maginot line the french defensives and those were led by german paratroopers and german glider-borne troops we had never seen this type of warfare before and so we had been driven back into the sea and evacuated you know, 70,000-odd soldiers and, and, and as many arms as we could from the D-Day beaches, but sorry, from the Dunkirk beaches, but left an awful lot of dead and, and, and captives and prisoners of war behind. So the last time we'd waged war on mainland France had, had, had been to our detriment. Gosh, it's, again, it's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? We just sit here talking about it like it's something out of a book. Well, I mean, it's, it's out of many, 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 many books of course, and inclu including your, your own, but it's bloody hard, isn't it, to realise these are men running for their lives. These are people that don't make it. These are people that get captured and they, you know, for all they know, they might have to spend the rest of their lives in a prisoner of war camp or certainly under the under under German command. Um, and that's one side of the channel. You've got the people on the other side and obviously not not just the UK, but the all, all, all the allied, all, all the allied countries, not knowing if their loved ones, yeah, if the, and it's not just not just one, yep. not just one loved one. Sometimes it was whole, you know, yep. fathers fighting and the three boys are fighting. It's, you got it. it. We can't we can't really comprehend that, can we? From our the comfort of, you know, I think think recently, and, and let's not say the the sea c word but recently we've you know we've all had to sort of dig in a bit 
but it's nothing compared to what they went through, is it? No, and you know, the thing that always strikes me, you know, however many books I write about, you know, special ops in World War Two, I never failed to be moved by and surprised by the, the youth of these guys. You know, we're talking 19, 20, 21 year olds. You know, we're talking 19 year old lieutenants leading leading raids, leading patrols of 12 or, or more men deep behind enemy lines. The level of responsibility that these men took on, men and women, and the level of horror they witnessed, men and women, and the level of, of sheer brute courage that they had to demonstrate to try to, you know, overcome. Um, you know, this is a battle for survival of civilization, obviously. We've seen nothing like it since then, and, and, and we hadn't seen anything like it really before. So, you know, the stakes could not have been higher, and, and the pressure and the weight on the shoulders of these very, very young soldiers uh, is always completely humbling. I think what I was doing at that age, you know, 19, 20, 21, I was at university, you know, uh, drinking too much and having a good time. These guys were away fighting for their very survival and the survival of the free world. Yes, I put a post up on Facebook recently. I won't, I won't go into what it was, but I, it, it, needless to say, it got misunderstood by by the great British masses. But it was along the similar lines of when you're um, walking down the street and you've got two 18-year-olds walking in front of you, and they got their trousers literally halfway down their ass, and they're boxer shorts sticking out and I don't know if this makes sense to people but for people of my age and, and of we're thinking gosh fellas and I'm not saying this is right or wrong what I'm but I'm just drawing a comparison it was guys your age had no choice but to be shipped over shipped over to France shipped over to the war or parachuted in or manning the ships or the the, the 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 spitfires and the other aircraft and that a lot of them their life was cut really really short and they saw things as teenagers that no person should really ever see and they had to obviously live those that those that did live had to live with the consequences out the rest of their lives and when you see yeah young people walking around with half their ass hanging out their bloody trousers it, it, I know it's different times. I know people can't be, and I'm no one's supposed to carry the guilt of the Second World War, but it, it does highlight, doesn't it, the sacrifice that those young people. Yeah, and and also bear in mind something. Just just by chance today, I've I've just been going through. I've got it all here. A massive private archive of a of a of, of the daughter of of a guy in the Second World War. It's absolutely fascinating. But the reason I bring it up is because. Also bear in mind, we live in a world of instant communication, okay? So if my son goes missing, I'll probably get a text message within an hour, okay? I've just been reading documents in which this guy's in Italy, okay? Well, in fact, he's in North Africa on operations. He gets captured by the Germans. He escapes from the Germans, gets recaptured by the Italians, gets put in, into an Italian prisoner of war camp. So I've been reading all the, all the letters that he sent his wife that he married just before the war. So they're, you know, they're both really young and just in their early 20s. So they've been sending each other letters every week. You know, these really touching love letters. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, bam, silence. She does not know 
what has happened to him. All she gets is a telegram from the war office saying, you, we're, we're sorry to inform you, your husband is missing, missing in action. Uh, if you hear from him, please inform us at the earliest opportunity. And the next proof of life, as it were, that she gets from him, obviously then, is weeks and weeks and weeks later, is a, a, a Red Cross note from a prisoner of war camp. So for all that time, she doesn't know what the fate is of her loved one. Obviously, she's, she's, she's imagining the worst, and obviously she's tortured by that. And then she gets a Red Cross letter, simply saying, and it's really interesting, when you read the Red Cross letter, it's, it's a pro forma, so all the typing's in one typeface, and they just insert the name of the individual. Do you get my drift? Because there were oh. so many of these letters having to be sent. So she gets that through the post, and suddenly she thinks, my God, my husband isn't dead, he's alive, but he's in a prisoner of war camp. What does that mean, you know? That there were such different times. There was no texting. There was no WhatsApp. There was no Facebook. There was no email. We had telegrams and letters, and it took a long time to get news of what had happened to those people you really cared about most. And so, you know, many of these people were left in limbo for months and months and months, sometimes even years. Yes, that's probably going off on a bit of a slant here, but just the whole texting thing has changed the face of life as we know it, hasn't it? And by that, I don't just mean the communications. I mean, the, it, it, it's changed the way humans think and interact. And, and an example there is the number of times I get a test, I just bloody wish the person had called me. You know, it's something important. Either that or they've texted and it's about seven pages long. And I think, why? What, if you think I'm writing seven pages back to you, it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, and the inappropriateness now that that and again, this is not just knocking young young people. It, it, you know, we've got it, it, the generations that went before have, have, have got to, to shoulder the, the, um, the responsibility. But it, it's this letting people know some really heartbreaking or important news, and, and they do it in a in a text, not realizing that's not how that's not how human beings. That's not why we fought fought for freedoms. Um, yeah, people finishing relationships in in or, or or people getting a text to say, "Oh, you've no longer got your job." Yeah, and the, and the employer thought that 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 that's okay. It's yeah, it's um yeah, it's it's it, another thing that's really fascinating. So so I've got you know two or three files of these letters. They're all filed in date order, but the point about it is. Several things are clear from these letters, okay? The first is how much they valued communication, proper communication. Each of these letters is a real work of, I wouldn't say, not quite literature, but they have really mm. crafted the communication. No word is wasted because they had such limited means to communicate. And the second thing is, as the war goes on, the quality of the paper gets worse and worse and worse so eventually you've got you've got them writing to each other on using pencil on on like reused army um sequestration forms and things like that which shows you how short we were running of all supplies during the war and it's almost like the more communications you get the more text whatsapp email whatever it is and the more and the easier it is the less the quality of the communication you send, because it's too quick and it's too easy. And reading back through these, or this, this five, six years of correspondence all through the war, 
it's like a window into another world. And it's a window into a world where people thought about what they were going to say. They considered it as they sat down at the fireplace and wrote a letter over three or four hours. Every word was meant to say something important because there was so limited space and time and communication really meant something. Mm. And delivering the appropriate communication in the appropriate way was appreciated and important. And we've lost a lot of that. Oh, massively. And we're all, and it's hard, isn't it? Because I'm guilty of the best wishes, Chris. I tend to put cheers because I think it's a bit Englishly, <laughs> a bit maybe a bit Englishy. And because I speak to a lot of um, Americans and Australians and stuff, I, or not obviously not the Australians, but the America, I think they think, oh, that's a bit Englishy. But on the letters you're talking about, it's it's always your loving son, isn't it? And 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 absolutely w- with high regards, and yeah. you can tell they they genuinely mean that politeness. It's something that they've had to consider and think about. And now it's just some banal nicism that's not that that it's not even <laughs> it's not even that that nice. And and like you say, so eloquent. I'll be embarrassed if I ever get shot in a trench and they read my let- letters out a hundred years later. <laughs> oh, oh my God. I, I I found some of the letters I wrote in training to my dad. And I write, got to go now, dad. Got to go and do some admin. <laughs> admin being a real Marines word, right? <laughs> and I'm like, you knob. <laughs> but um, yes, my gosh. Let's maybe talk a bit about the SAS again then, because what I will say is uh, our our friend, um, was it Major Main? Was it was it Paddy Main? Ended up as a no Lieutenant Colonel, wasn't it? Lieutenant Colonel, yeah. Yeah, Lieutenant. Yeah, yeah, he's um, he's certainly divisive in my comment section. (laughs) Is he? Well, it's a fine line with a YouTube channel Damien and I I know you have your own but because of all the different topics I sort of cover and I I don't try to focus on one you 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 get a lot of a lot of comments and they're all coming from different walks of life and 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 that's that's great but it's always a fine line between someone being rude and someone being let's say constructive and and, yeah absolutely yeah you know and I, I I maybe I should make this point for our friends listening um you know, is how you say things. Some of them are just blatantly rude. Mm-hmm. There's a thing that young people do now, and again, it's one of those things like I, I see it in my head, but I don't know if other people would get it, but I, I call it the shit sandwich, although my girlfriend says it's called a toasty. It's where they, they give you a lecture and then they tell you how great you are afterwards. <laughs> it's just like it's, someone's got to young people and said, right, have a go at someone like this, but as long as you tell them they've got a nice, you know, that you like, you like their hoodie, then that that's fine, <laughs> right? And and it's this isn't like a one-off. This is I get hundreds of these comments. Um, but going back to the Paddy Main thing, it was the fact that um, there is this uh, double kind of history of the chat. Um, it prompted me to go on some web pages. Mm-hmm. And there's the story, and again, I say story because I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I, I know how history gets twisted. I'm not saying it wasn't true, I, but I can't say it was true. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one where he bursts through the... Uh, the doorway. The doorway, ger, ger, uh, German mess, 
on a one of their airfields. I think was it in Italy or North Africa? Yeah. Um, again, allegedly took everybody by surprise. They were all maybe having a drink or having some food, and and he gunned down all thirty or thirty-three of them or something. Okay, but you know, let, let, let's think about that. Okay, you're a former Royal Marine. Okay, so so you know um, what it's like to be, um, you know, on the front line. Now, Paddy Main was leading a patrol, an SAS patrol, deep behind the lines in North Africa. What was their mission? Their mission was to take out German and Italian air bases, that's warplanes, and those who operated those warplanes. Why was it a crucial mission? Because we were losing the war in North Africa. We'd, we'd won it initially against the Italians, and then Hitler sent Rommel, one of his best generals, to North Africa with the Africa Corps, and they were beating us uh, left, right, and centre. We were being driven back to Cairo, into Egypt, and we might lose the Suez Canal, at which stage things were looking very dire, okay? So hit those airfields, take away the German-Italian air cover, and you might start to turn things around in the war in North Africa, and also with the siege of Malta. So theirs was a vital mission. Now let's look at the makeup of their patrol. What did they have? They had a few Jeeps, a few Jeep-mounted machine guns, some Lewis bombs, which are these um, incendiary um, devices to blow up aircraft, and a handful of men, probably 12 men. David Sterling said you deploy in four-man units. That's your ideal unit for behind-the-line raids. But then normally went with around about 12. So they're going into an airport in the dead of night, hundreds, sometimes over a 1,000 kilometres behind enemy lines. When they've raided that airfield, they've then got to get back again, hunted all the way, okay? In that mess, there are German pilots, German pilots fly warplanes, which are killing our troops and which are the target that they've been mm. sent out to destroy. OK, if he doesn't, if he and his men didn't do what they did at that moment and said, OK, we'll leave those guys in the mess. We'll just go and um, sabotage the aircraft. What were the chances that they would have been discovered? And then you have 30 guys piling out of that mess with weapons to hunt them down. So in the moment, faced by the situation they faced, why was that the wrong call? War's not a nice thing. You know that. Mm. I know that. I've been on the front line of war as a reporter. You've been there as a, as, a, as, a, as a soldier. You know, but it's not a great... I'm carrying a camera, you're carrying a weapon. We've both had similar kind of experiences. You know war is not a pretty thing. And you're not there to do nice things. You're there to fight. Um, you know, and, and Paddy Main made a split-second decision. You speak to anyone, and there are just a handful, two or three veterans left alive who served alongside Paddy Main and I have spoken to them. And you ask them why they would follow that man to the ends of the earth, actually to hell and back, because they'll all say that about him, okay? And they won't say that's because they, they, he was the most likable individual. It would, they won't say it's because they worshiped him. It's because they'll say he would get you out of there alive if, if he possibly could. And he always led from the front. And he had this uncanny, ghostly ability to assess threat and danger in an instant, in a split second, to decide whether the right thing to do was to attack or run away. That's what he had. So isn't it easy, 70, 75 years after the events, to, um, you know, to throw stones and to cast aspersions? I mean, you know, I... Just by chance, two weeks ago, I was with 
Paddy Main's niece, Fiona, okay, mm -hmm. who's his nearest living relative. You know, this is a man who many believe should have been given the Victoria Cross at the end of the war. And, and, and he instead he won his first, his fourth DSO, Distinguished Service Order, um, which in, in itself is, is, is an incredible achievement, one of the most decorated soldiers ever in the British Army. Um, you know, and people always ask, well, you know, was he, was he bitter that he didn't get the Victoria Cross? And, you know, I was there with a filmmaker who wanted to meet, uh, you know, Fiona, um, Blair Main's niece, and he asked her that question. And she said he was never in it for the decorations or the medal. He's just, when I finished reading his book, Damien, I, I, was, I was left, like, grie grieving a bit. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know? God, I'm getting a bit upset now just thinking about it. I mean, he, what, whatever, he was a character, you know. He's a, and not everybody is. In fact, there's not enough. There's not enough of them. And this is the thing. Uh, um, it is war, and, and war is horrible. And there are sort of, I don't want to say pretenses. There are certain um, conventions in play, let's say. But if any civilian thinks that that, that that that's a rigid set of etiquette that everybody abides by then they're i'm gonna say they're probably a bit 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 naive like you say this was a mess full of fighter aces german fighter aces who were right. dedicated at all cost to that's getting right. kills mm -hmm. they they didn't see it as killing the enemy they saw it as, as, as getting kills getting the marks on the side of their plane so when they went back to the you know, back to Berlin or wherever they could, you know, raise a glass of champagne, and that—that—that's a fighter race over there. I mean, they saw I mean, it. As... Not, not only that, Chris, but you've got to bear in mind when they when they carried out these raids. Okay, the Germans didn't really have an equivalent unit to the SAS or the Long Range Desert Group, which were the the, the more intelligence gathering unit in North African deserts. They had small small kind of ad hoc units but nothing really to compare so when they carried out these raids what was it that hunted them through the desert it was the luftwaffe obviously it was air aircraft mm. and pilots so the more aircraft you could take out and let's be honest about it the more pilots you could kill the less chance that you'd actually be hunted for a thousand miles back across the desert as you tried to retreat and get back to your base yeah and it's not just that is it, it it's an incredibly brave thing to do to kick a door down with only a submarine, a, a, a British sub, an English submachine sub gun at best, which for anyone wondering what I'm on about, they're prone to stoppages. Um, to, yeah, I mean, most people would be like, right, I'll give that door a miss and can we just get, you know, let, let, let's just try and get out. And But no, it was, it constantly saw, saw it um, through to the end and war isn't nice and I think, some of the stories I've heard from the Falklands would probably really make people, um, yeah, it would it, it it would spin their minds. I think if they knew some of the truths of what went on down there, you know, young men full of anger, bitterness, testosterone, had to watch their their friends massacred, and we're, I'm obviously talking about both sides here now. You fight your way up a hill. You got you know a grenade and you got to chuck it in a trench, you know a trench of the enemy that have just just killed your best friends, and then if they shoot you all the way up the mountain and 
and once they get overrun they they suddenly go like this when they could have done that eight hours ago or 12 hours ago and and no one would have had to get hurt you, you, you know it, it's um it's not even like a decision is it it's you're 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 in that you're in that you're in that killer's up killer zone and uh i think um yeah it's it's slightly naive to try to put these um fixed rules on things isn't it yeah i mean you know especially in world war Two, you know some of these guys by the end of the war they had been doing behind the lines operations 1940 41 42 43 44 five, for five or six years mm -hmm. and sometimes they were doing more than one a week back to back with no leave no going back home no no seeing your loved ones and at the same time seeing your best friends because you'll know as well as I do, Chris, when you're in combat situations, you generally tend to make the most incredibly close relationships with those you know who are close with you for obvious reasons. You're all about to die or not die, as the case might be. So you've been five years at war doing behind-the-lines operations, seeing your closest friends get killed, get captured. You know when they're captured, they're getting tortured by the Gestapo and being murdered, because we realised that after a while, that's what was happening. And yet you're supposed mm. to fight by Queensbury rules. What are the chances? Imagine the trauma. Imagine the drip, 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 drip effect of the trauma over all those years. Imagine what that does to your mind. That mm. there's a story about Maine later in the war, you know, kind of end of 44, early 45. And they're they're advancing into Germany, the SAS at the Vanguard as always. And they capture a young SS man in pristine uniform who has just been responsible for, for some unspeakable atrocities against civilians, as, as they often were, okay? And there's a man on his patrol who had been captured earlier in the war, held by the Gestapo and the SS, tortured, sent, sentenced to murder, taken to Woodland to be shot and escaped. And he says to Maine, let me deal with him. And there's a quote, you know, from, from, from what Maine said at the time, and he said, I used to think war was a chivalrous thing. But, you know, the age of, of knights in armour has long gone. Take him away. And so, you know, I'm not saying that they took him away and executed him. I don't think they did. But they certainly took him away and roughed him up. And can you, you know, it's it's easy to criticise from, 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 you know, the situations we, we live in now. But you haven't just spent five years fighting that kind of war, you know. Mm. And, and, and every time that, you know, someone like Maine led his men into battle... He led from the front, absolutely from the front, and he knew what he was fighting for. And he was fighting for freedom, simple as that. Yes. In freedom's cause. Yes, and it's um, the alternative doesn't bear thinking about, does it? No, and, you no. know, if, if they hadn't, we would very, it's very unlikely we would be sitting here now having this conversation in, in, in free societies. Mm. Things would have been very different. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think we need to... Be very, 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 uh, think long and hard before we criticise those who fought in that conflict in particular. It's not just that, though, is it? It's, it, it's, it's your, if you're, cr you're criticising a dead man that fought for your free, you know, he's not here to defend himself and his relatives have to listen to your bad mouth in his, his legacy, you know? Um, I'm just a great believer. If you haven't got something good to say, just just yes it's funny what triggers people and, and the other thing about it as well chris you know in in, in main's in, in main's case you know um 
one of the reasons I went and met, met his niece um, several years ago was because she had all Paddy Main's war chests, right? So I went through them. And in there are all the letters that he wrote to all the relatives of the men he lost under his command. And every single letter, that's the man. Every single letter is heartfelt, you know? It's a real piece of heartfelt care and concern for the men under his command. And you rarely find anyone from the time within that unit who has a bad word to say against him. Yeah, there's a few character clashes, but, you know, if he was this monster, which is how some people like to portray him, why didn't that come out at the time? Quite the reverse. The, the men who went to war with Paddy Main revered him. Like I said to you, they would follow him into hell and back. And they had very specific, comprehensible reasons why. Yes. Damien, let's just um, take a, not, not a break as such. Um, just wanted to read a few things out. So first of all, hello to everybody who's joined our live chat. Um, chatting away there, you legends. Thank you ever so much. Michael, who's made a donation to the cause. Um, much love to you, Michael. Re really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Brooke's there, taking charge of everybody. Thank you, Brooke. Blake's there. Blake's very kindly been helping me out on the channel. Absolutely uh, lovely man. Thank, thank you, Blake. Um, hello to everybody else. Blake always comes in with an update of how many mackerel his factory's processed processed this day, <laughs> which is brilliant. I worked in a mackerel factory, Blake, and uh, you don't want to know what what I saw in there. Believe me, health and safety is um. It's not something that, that happens in a Plymouth mac mackerel factory. Um, what have I got written down here? Yes, thank you everybody in my Patreon who's up their membership because I've checked, I've put in a few more levels now and they've upped it to help me. Um, obviously help me that you help my family. I can't thank you enough. Um, Brooke being one of them. Johnny Elliott, I think was the second person to join our YouTube membership. So if you want to join the membership, just click the join button underneath the video and we'll be delighted to see you. I don't do anything for free. There's, it's all benefits. If you want life coaching, $9.99 a month is probably, I think, the cheapest you're, you're going to get it. So check out, check out the levels. Um, Chris Andrews, who very kindly has just knocked me up a whole load of um, merchandise. This isn't for sale. He just did it for me. As a thank you for, for, for hosting the podcast, um, I think the great thing about my podcast and our guests is it, it helps a lot of people to make sense of the world. They hear stuff here that you're just not going to hear, certainly on not on the BBC, but but probably not not really on the other the other podcasts. We like to try and keep it real. Um, so, Chris, thank you for that. Um, yeah, just one thing I'm going to say is, um, friends at home, this is a podcast. It's not a manifesto. We don't just target a particular kind of guest who represents a particular kind of view. I know a lot of people like the QAnon stuff. There's people love the military stuff. And, you know, and from my perspective, I could make a fortune if I just went, I mean, literally make a fortune if I just went down that road but it's not who I am and it's not what I want to do and what it's called bought the t-shirt for a reason so with that I ask you to be polite to my guests you know 
um, they won't see the world the same way as you do and that's fine it's the rich tapestry of life and what I'll always remind you is remember you can learn as much from someone who has the polar opposite thinking and, and outlook of yourself you can in in that scenario learn a lot about a, a lot about you know that person and and life in general um and it makes it interesting for me as a host because uh gosh yes i've certainly chatted to some very interesting to interesting people so all i'm saying there is just keep it polite folks please um yes back to your writing damien um the sas story did you meet anyone from that patrol are they still alive or, or was this done through research the patrol in in band of brothers or yeah yeah no uh, there's no one left from the patrol um the nearest i've i've got so the patrol was commanded by um a captain um garstan i'm just trying to see if there's a there's a photograph of him in here somewhere um and yeah here we go Look, if people could see that captain garstan can you see that guys can you lift it up slightly Wow, yeah. he looks he looks so young. There you go. So Captain Garstan, when he parachuted into France just after D-Day, his son, Sean, had his first birthday, his one-year-old birthday. So that's that's Captain Garstan's first child, had his one-year-old birthday just a few weeks after he parachuted behind the lines in France to blow up the Nazi um, armour. And, of course, Sean doesn't remember anything about his father because his father died uh, at the end of that mission. He was executed in a, in, in a, in a French woodland on Hitler's personal orders. And so in the process of writing the book and working closely with Sean, it's been amazing because I've dug stuff out of the archives and from other sources about his father and his father's military record and his, and his story during the war, which Sean didn't even know. And so he, he wrote me this absolutely... Yeah, he's written me lots of really fantastic um, emails and we've had amazing conversations. But he basically said, you know, this process of helping you write the, this book and then reading the manuscript has enabled me to rediscover the man I never knew and I never got to know him because... Um, and just going back to Paddy Main, fantastic story, right? After um, uh, his father is, you know, uh, confirmed killed in action, Sean Garstan's mother, bear in mind he's a one-year-old in, 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 a, in a pram, takes him to Darvel in Scotland, which is the SAS HQ at the time, okay? <laughs> and they get him in the bar, right? Paddy Main is officiating, okay? And they, they, they get him to do eight parachute jumps off the bar, assisted, right? And they pin a set of wings onto Sean Garstan's pram. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yes. One of the stories over, yeah. How... How is it for him though? If he, if so, if he never really knew his father, how, how do, how does one come to terms with something like that? Uh, tough. I mean, you know, uh, very difficult. Um, you know, but look, sadly, he wasn't alone, was he? I mean, how many, how many other young children during the war never got to know, you know, their father for that? For, sometimes their mother for that reason. Um, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier. You know the level of sacrifice and loss uh we just have no idea i mean it's something that that, that I, I don't can't remember if we talked about this last time we were on but again that that you know on the eastern front so so in russia they lost over 20 
million people. I mean, the Allies all, all, all together, we lost about 550,000 troops. That's American, British, Australian, New Zealand and Commonwealth. Let's not forget the Commonwealth. In Russia, they lost 20, over 20 million. It could be about, it's about 23 million. It, it, it's the Russian front which let, which bled the German war machine dry, which really won the war, but they lost 20, over 20 million people. And what's the population of Russia? Can't, have been, can't have been that big back then, can it? So imagine, you know, it, it's inconceivable, isn't it? You know, um, and so people in, in the Second World War, you know, they, 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 everybody experienced loss. And every, everybody experienced loss on a very personal level. Somebody that they knew in their family, in their extended family. You, know, you had some families where eight brothers went to war. Mm. You know, that was, that was just what you had to do. So, uh, you know, when you ask me about Sean Garstan, yes, it was difficult, but he wasn't alone. You know, his experience was not unique. And I think that helps. You know, there were other people around who'd been through the same thing as he had. When he went to school, there were other kids at the school who'd lost fathers or uncles, you know. Yes. And it's good. It's, it, 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 it helps when you don't feel alone. Yeah, I meant to say, Damien, excuse me when I'm looking all around the screen. I, I'm not ignoring you. Right. It's just I've got the technology to keep my eye on the people writing stuff in the chat. And it looks like I'm being people think I'm being really rude, but it's just. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. My gosh. Um, do you ever think this maybe might sound a bit bad, but how would the global population be now? if those 20 million hadn't been killed and if the millions in the first world war, what would we have had to, do you think, would we as, as a sort of global society had to have managed thing, you know, like have a one child policy or something? Cause this is, this is huge numbers, isn't it? Huge to... numbers. I mean, we, we lost, it, it's, it's the greatest loss of human life from any conflict ever is the second world war. Um, you know, um, I mean, China, they lost over 20 million people. I mean, how many of, how many of us know that? I only, I only realised it when I was researching a book, 20 million in China during the war. Um, so, yeah, massive losses of life. Bear in mind that the human population was a lot less then. Um, you know, and, 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 and nowhere, no part of the world was untouched, Chris. You know, mm. you can't look, look at that map behind you. I can't think of anywhere which was not touched in some way, shape or form by the horror and the loss. And, um, you know, we are in, on, on the cusp of losing the last few, you know, surviving veterans from the war who, who can sit down with you and try and make you understand. I mean, I do this. I go and, I go and meet veterans and talk to them. I, I, you know, this book, I had, a, um, I had a, one of the few SS, SAS survivors. Um, he was in the LRGG, then the SAS, then the SBS, Special Boat Service. Um, and I had him read the whole manuscript. And, you know... <laughs> He's had double cataract operations, so he has to sit down and read the whole thing with a magnifying glass. <laughs> a guy called Jack Mann, an amazing, what a lovely man. And so to have him read the whole thing and then say, you know, well, it wasn't quite like that. It was like this. And, you know, you, you've got that spot on. But this is how we felt about, you know, th that kind of feedback is just priceless and invaluable. But it won't be around for much longer. So t tell me something. I've got a couple of fascinating things I can't wait to discuss with you first one just off the top of my head um it's a very emotive subject all the stuff you write about uh military personnel tend to wear their kind of let's just say personalities on their sleeve 
i.e. it's their military service is very special to them, right? Yeah. Not, yeah. not, not for sprogs like me. I did seven years. It was a long time time ago. I've done an awful lot, sort of more in my life since, I guess you could say. But for the the guys that are really committed and they do their, I mean, some guys are doing thirty thirty year careers now, right? Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to other authors that they really get attacked. You know, they when they write the historical piece about the the. Um, battles gone by. I don't want to be too specific because I don't want people to to know who I'm talking about. But um, yeah, they've really sort of come under attack. Um, reasons. Well, lots of reasons. Uh, first of all, if you put yourself in a public sphere as as we do, you yeah. you get attacked, and it's you just do, yeah, 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 to yeah. me. I like it because if you get the more you're getting attacked, the 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 better job you you're doing with your career, right? Yeah. Um, what what I mean by that is obviously put yourself out there. People are going to attack you, and they, are. they do, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And I I get it. I understand it. I know why they do it. So it doesn't it do, it it doesn't doesn't bother me. Yeah. But when people are writing about a certain part of history, especially if it's kind of fairly recent, so so military people are either involved in that um, yeah that manoeuvre or, or or that war or whatever it might be. Um, they kind of take umbrage to to to, to somebody writing about it because I think they see it as oh you know that that person's cashing in on my bit of glory or my yeah you know my front garden or or how dare he write a book when I haven't I haven't written you know it's a little bit like when I wrote my Hong Kong memoir yeah the number of people wrote to me and said oh the the biggest thing was how come you wrote a book about Hong Kong if you only lived there a year <laughs> I said. Well, that's the year that I wrote about. <laughs> you know, seriously, got you, the expats there because, again, a very similar thing. People who's a big part of their ego is that they've lived in Hong Kong yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. during the yeah. 90s and it was yeah, all yeah. a bit of a very yeah. small, clicky community yeah. back then, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and for people who come from working class England who's suddenly in the Orient, you know, sampling a bit of the good life. It's they they really kind of own that you know it's it's yeah, that, yeah. and when someone comes along and writes a book and they haven't written a book yeah, yeah, yeah. but they live there seven years but you only yeah. live there three you know <laughs> you only, you only live there one how yeah. and I get it it's ju- it's just just human nature but um, I wondered if you ever ever get that kind of uh, flack can we say people trying to point out historical inaccuracies yeah, and it's... yeah you, you do uh, the, the 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 thing you i mean i had a i won't say from whom but i had a um a message on facebook a couple of days ago from someone saying you know i'm the expert in that in that area i know everything there is to know about it you know and they weren't quite saying you know how dare you write a book about it that's my topic but that that was the kind of undercurrent chris that's not the point why did you write a book about Hong Kong when you only lived there for a year? Because, my friend, you're a storyteller. <laughs> Why do I write books about the Second World War when I didn't fight it? And I'm not perhaps the ex- expert in that particular tiny slice of history because I'm a storyteller. Okay. And with respect, there aren't a lot of people who can do that. It's a rare gift. And I'm not saying that out of any 
arrogance. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just telling the truth. It's hard to tell stories, especially when you've got to spend six months writing them. That's six months at a keyboard and then all the research before it. It takes mm. a certain mindset to even want to do that. It's a very lonely profession. You know, you've got to be a bit, you know, you've got to be very single minded. You've got to be very committed. People often ask me, what's the secret to writing a book? And it's a really boring answer. The answer is time at the keyboard. OK, so I, I get quite a lot of that. And really, the answer is quite simple. Well, if you want to write a book about it, please go ahead. And if, and you, don't, about, if you don't like mine, you don't yeah. have to read them. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 that's all there is to it, really. Um, yeah. The next thing. I, I think people also, you know, um, I think people, people get very attached to certain areas and periods of history. And I understand that and I appreciate that. But popularising those areas of history, which is what, what, I mean, I'm a popular historian. I like to make history popular. I like to make it accessible. What I love about the feedback I get on my books, you know, whether it be via email or Facebook or whatever, is I love it when I get anything from a 13-year-old lad to a 92-year-old, you know, veteran write to me and say, I read your book and I couldn't put it down. You know what I really like as well? I get a lot of feedback from people who have learning disabilities, whether they're, I mean, I, I'm dyslexic and I get a lot of feedback from dyslexics saying, I don't read books. I haven't oh, picked up a book in 10 years. Yours, yeah. I picked your book up because someone, someone told me to read it. And three days later, I finished it and I couldn't put it down. Mm. I love that because that means you're taking history, which generally is a bit of a niche area, and you're making it accessible and available to everyone. Whoever controls the past, controls the present, controls the future. We have to understand the past to understand the present and the future. History is really important. Let's get it out to as many people as we can. Yes, yes. I'm just chuckling to myself with this. It's, um, it's just funny that another human being can say that you never lived in a place. Like, what, what, why would you... It's um, it's like you telling me you lived in London. I go, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's, well, I did. <laughs> Sorry, but I did. Yeah, you was you were never in the Royal Marines. Well, I kind of was. <laughs> like you could type my name in a search engine, and you, you you we wouldn't have to be having this conversation. It's very people are strange. One one chap. So, sorry, I go off on a tangent again, but. I did a, a a Walter Mitty video, and I, I'm not bothered about the whole Walter Mitty thing. I genuinely couldn't care. As long as you're not hurting anyone, wear the hell what you want, pretend who you want to be. You know, if, as long as you're not robbing people or, or, or robbing charities, it's not my issue, right? But one guy on a really big uh, podcast I went on, so it was a real special one for me because, you know, I've got to put food on my family's table. And there's some guy in a chat turns out to be a matlow so supposedly my brother brother in arms going yeah well clearly this guy's never been the rings because like he'd never phrase things the way he's phrasing it so i only replied it's the only time i'll ever reply to any is is that that, that this is a, was an important podcast right this this can this is like make or break it in this industry and i didn't want the first comment or the fifth comment down stuck there by some tosspot who, who just has got literally two brain cells, one to keep his eyes open, the other to write stuff on YouTube. Um, 
I didn't want him leading the charge and other people seeing that and thinking, and you know, people are a bit kind of persuadable, uh, influenceable. I don't even know if that's even a word, but, um, and so I, I just replied with some comment like, yeah, don't, don't, don't bother to, to do a search on me before you, yeah, you, you try and expose me in public or, or I put someone, don't bother picking up the phone, brother, you know, so we could yeah. have a chat and I could tell you actually who, who I really am when I served. Right. It wasn't the fact he was calling me or walk me because I, I couldn't care less about, it. I get called that all the time. Right. Anyway, the guy then rather than apologized, just started digging this big hole and, um, going, right, get your medals out and your service papers. Everyone will have them. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know everyone will have them because I served, right? You don't have to. Yeah. But if you were it, you would, you would have it. You, and what it is, you get them out for charity. I'll give you a thousand pounds, right? For that charity. And so I did a whole video right? <laughs> and the long, tall and short of it was at the end of the video, I said, I, sorry, I don't prove myself to anyone. <laughs> I'm a Royal Marines commando. I don't have to, right? It was kind of a bit of a, thing but he's still going <laughs> he's still he's, he's still going <laughs> sorry damien i'm 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 talking uh, 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 i'm talking over your guest appearance but no 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 no. i have one today right well yesterday so <laughs> the strap line for this book can you see it it's the la the last stand of the ss and the hunt for the nazi killers right so he messages me and he says oh yeah all germans are nazis and they're all killers not like all soldiers aren't killers um, typical bit of British um, bullshit, something like that. Okay, and I so I said, um, well, actually, um, it's very clear on the cover, not to mention the word German. And I said, and actually, in that twelve-man patrol, one is from Czechoslovakia, another is French. I said, one is from Mauritius. I said, half the patrol are Irish. That's from North and Southern Ireland. And then there's a few Brits. So on every count, you are demonstrably wrong. And I said, and throughout the story, there are actually good Germans fighting on the side of the Allies, because that's another thing about the SAS. During the war, they actually recruited a load of Germans, because these were German Jews who fled the Holocaust, ended up mostly in um, Palestine in North Africa, then got recruited into the Middle Eastern Commando. And when that was disbanded, they got taken into the SAS. And why not? Because who else is going to hate Hate, hate Hitler and the Nazis more than the people who've been subjected to the Holocaust. So obviously these guys made brilliant fighters. They had nothing to lose. A lot of them had seen all their families killed, murdered. So mm. I said, that's that's the cast of characters in the book. So, you know, why don't you just do a bit of research or read it before spouting off? You know, it happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's going back to what we were talking about earlier. This thing about instant communication. If we didn't have instant communication, maybe the person would have enough time to go in and think about it, do a bit of research, read the book, and then say something meaningful. And I said to the guy, I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to ban you from the page. I said, but engage in thoughtful, well-researched, positive, polite, and constructive debate. And then we can talk about anything you want. Yes, of course. It's, yeah. God, you're telling the choir. <laughs> it's so uh... I'm not going to say breach into the choir, but I, I get it. I, yeah, I, I, I get it. It's, it's funny you used to say that because that was the next thing I was going to talk about is that brings me on to another person who uses that exact approach that you just outlined on his Facebook page. And that's Robin Horsfall. Yeah. 
for our friends at home, one of the uh, members of the SES who was in the Iranian embassy siege. Now, when Robin came on the podcast, he did mention that after he left uh, the forces, that he went to work as a mercenary. And he also said, I worked as a mercenary in Sri Lanka until at such a time when I realised I was probably on the side of the bad guys, right? Yeah. And I, I'll be honest, it was slightly out the boundaries of the podcast. I'm thinking SAS, the balcony, you know, selection. And this this was a bit of an aside, so I didn't really uh, probe into it. But um, what happened is, is I got a very nice man joined my Patreon team this week. And his name's Shankar from Sri Lanka. And he said, Chris, are you aware of the Keeney Meanies? And he sent me a link for a YouTube video. And when you hear that name, I thought it's some children's cartoon or, or something. So so anyway, I downloaded the, the, the documentary and I watched it last night and I understood what he's on about. Apparently, Keeney Meanies is some, um, I don't know if it's South Africa, comes from South Africa, but it's some kind of slang that was adopted by special forces, soldier types um, to... I'm waffling now because now I think of it, I don't actually know if I know what it means, but it was adopted into the name of a mercenary corporation. Yeah, Keeney Meany Services. Yeah, KMS, Keeney Meany Services. And and um, yeah, it's funny how these things come around. So I watched the documentary last night and gosh, yeah, it was um, there was a lot going on down there, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you covered that much in your writing or in... in, in, in in your sort of affairs of um, affairs of writing? No, no. I mean, I know about the Keeney Mini story, Services story. Uh, there's another amazing story, which, you know, I've been meaning to to, to, to write at some stage where, <clears throat> and in a sense, Sterling, who was the founder of the SAS, he had two, you know, great passions in life. One was special forces. The other was African wildlife conservation. And... Um, really towards the end of his life, his last real mission was he formed a unit of private contractors who went to, to, to South Africa, Kenya, Zimbabwe, all these places where there's so much big game. And their mission was to infiltrate the poaching gang. And, and it wasn't so much that they were on, you know, going out with the guns, anti-poaching on the ground. It was more to infiltrate the other way up into the Chinese triads and the networks which run all the ivory and the rhino horn from Africa into in, into Asia, which is where the real where the real money is, and that went on for about eighteen months clandestinely, based based out of South Africa, but all across Africa and further afield into Asia. It's an amazing story. It was called Operation Lock. That was the code name for it, and they're actually funded by some very wealthy individuals in in, in the West and by a, a very very well known conservation organisation. Amazing story. Um, and it's one of those, like, a bit like Keeney Meany Services, which is not that well known about, hardly heard about at all, but absolutely, you know, riveting in terms of what they're up to. Um, and that there are obviously guys left around from these kind of missions because we're talking not so long ago. You know, it's like several decades after the Second World War. So there are guys walking around who are involved in those kind of missions who you can still go out and talk to. And I think the, the people who made that, documentary on Keeney Meany, they've actually spoken to some 
some of the veterans. I, I've not watched it, so uh, but you have, so you can probably tell me. Yeah, Robin's um, in, in it quite a lot. He was warned, he? he was warned by the command not to take part in it, and he he, if you know Robin, he cuts his own <laughs> cuts, yeah. cuts his own path through life. Yeah. Um, and he's very honest in it. You know, he gives us, he got to a point where some of the stuff I think that was going on was pretty horrendous. The the, the good guys were sort of be, the, becoming the bad guys or had become the bad guys. And and um, he he made his excuses and, and, and got out of there. But I, yeah. Um, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was certainly an eye opener. But it, again, it was just all those things in war where it's fine on paper. But that's that's not the reality of war, is it? The reality is you're gunning, you know, you're you're firing into schools and and not knowing who's on the other side of the wall, and and and, and there's the civilians are, are just getting smashed. Just yeah, bad, you know. bad things happen in war. I mean, mm. you know, and I saw a lot of it. Uh, you know, a lot of it. You know, and it never leaves you, Chris. When when you've mm. seen things like that, it will always be with you for the rest of your life. What one of the things which which always comes to my mind for some reason this particular thing sticks in my head of the many horrific things that i've seen so i was in the sudan um you know um a decade or more ago two decades ago probably now i've been there i've been there many 60 times or so and um i was reporting obviously uh, on the civil war it was africa's longest running civil war you know 3.5 million dead really uh, pretty horrific and um we, we'd been in this village and reporting, and then the commander, the rebel commander, said, I need to take you to this place. And we said, why? He said, just get in the car and come. So we jumped in this technical and drove across the bush, and we turned up at this place. And what happened is uh, they'd flown over in some, some Antonovs and dropped these barrel bombs out the back of the Antonovs, and one had landed on the school. Now, whether it's targeting the school or not, I don't know, but, it, it, you know, what it, it, it had obviously, you know, destroyed the school and all the children who are in it very very horrific and but but the point is why it sticks in my mind is because and we couldn't be on the ground very long we had we had to fly out from the airstrip nearby very shortly thereafter and as we go into the airstrip this guy comes out of the bush tall um elegant looking uh, guy dressed in a suit and you sometimes have this in sudan the older generation very very smartly dressed and he's got a jar and he's shaking it like you'd have someone trying to collect for, you know, poppy donations on Remembrance Sunday. And there's a slit cut in the lid of the jar. And I, and I said, what are you collecting money for? And he said, to buy a surface-to-air missile. And I said, to do what? He said, to shoot down the Antonov. So next time it comes over the school to try and bomb our school, we can shoot it down. And in the jar, he probably had, I don't know, less than $50. You know, mm. it was such a, such a kind of sad, pointless, bizarre crazy setup and and that's the kind of awful shitty situations you end up in in war yeah yeah, yeah. you know yeah, crawling yeah. around in those kind of really really dire circumstances jamie let's take some questions and then um and then i think we shall call it call it an evening i'll go and tell my little boy his story you're i think your boys are too old for that now are they yeah they just uh tell dad to get lost and go back to watching their phones <laughs> <laughs> So first off, Tony, thank you so much, uh, my friend, for your donation, and also to Aidy, really appreciated. Um, I'm glad people get 
get stuff out of these like live chats i know i certainly certainly do it's um it's a bit of a dream come true for me to spend my friday evening like this to be honest so let's go back up i've asked people to put their questions in capitals so i can see them first question was for me was the royal marines your only job in the military and did you ever try for selection uh, yes marines was my only job in the military i tried to get in the rf but they wouldn't have me um, I didn't try for selection because I never really thought I was that type of person. And also my business came along, which is the reason I, I left the uh, Marines. That's from Alfie. Thank you, Alfie. So, yeah, I went to pursue business. I, uh, I, thought, it, I thought everything was going to be plain, plain sailing and lo and behold. So Brooke, Brooke is my wonderful, um, he's on my podcast team, wonderful guy. Were there more British and Canadian soldiers involved in D-Day than Americans. Well, they're more British and Canadians than Americans. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that the question? Yes. So if you add all the British and Canadians up, was that more than Americans? I don't think so. <clears throat> I'm not an expert, but I don't think so. I found out that one of the um, ships of D-Day sailed from Plymouth. I, I'd assume that was too too far, uh, look at the map here, too f I mean, it's quite a crossing from Plymouth to get to France, but... Um, yeah, apparently I think it, they sell for Sword Beach. I might, I might have General General Arthur. Oh, I don't know if I got that name name right, but yeah. Um, dun dun dun. Yeah, it's always just sad to think Paddy Main died in a car accident. Yeah. I wonder how sad. You know, was he sad? What was he sad in his life? I mean, we discussed this, didn't we? Yeah. We. He, 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 he had it was a late night drinking session another one and um yeah I, I interviewed the guy who was the last to see him alive um over in northern ireland recently so he, oh, wow. he, you know he was troubled by what he'd seen in the war chris it's obvious isn't it as you as you would have been and back then there was no recognition of trauma or ptsd or any of these things so you had to you had to you know deal with it on your own and that that's a dark place yeah mm -hmm. Yes, nothing like what we've got. We haven't got much now to help people deal with their, their trauma. But even back then, it wasn't even a recognised thing, was it? That's right. Just very strange. So we've got history, bro. Hello, bro. Uh, thank you for coming on the channel. Um, I think you have your own channel because I think I saw somebody comment. So I hope all that's going OK. Uh, Rommel never had the resources to take and hold Cairo. No, as in, like, is that a question? Is that, um, yeah, Cairo? Yeah, I mean, he he got so close to taking Cairo that the, the British diplomats and politicians were burning sensitive documents uh, all across the city. And, like, the ash was falling so thick that it said it was like snowing in Cairo. The problem was, you're right, the supply lines were then so long for Rommel across the North African desert that he was running out of supplies, just like it had been for us before. That was probably the biggest challenge of the North African campaign, the logistics chain. And yeah, by the time he was approaching Cairo, it was getting very, very, very strained. Yes. God, we could probably have a whole nother podcast again, just talking about the logistics of the whole war. Yes. Um, and there's a few shenanigans going on there from... Uh, on there just, yeah. From... Uh, we say the Bush family or <laughs> the Bush family ancestry. What what a surprise! Yeah. Um, so, ba ba ba. Funny, I went into a hotel in Cairo, and 
I looked at the woman behind the desk and I said, can you tell me where the pyramid, you know, how to get to the pyramids, right? I'm thinking it was three days trek by camel into the desert, you're dying of thirst, you've got a picture, you know, some canvas, sleep under the star. She went, they're there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I looked, at, I looked out the door, oh, right. It's like they're on the edge of the car park. <laughs> yes. Da, da, da. Right. Um, yeah, PTSD that Chris emphasizes on these podcasts. Yeah, someone's got to talk about it, folks, haven't they? You know, um, bah, bah, bah. We're gonna, I think Brooke's going to find a way we can manage the questions a bit better so it, so it doesn't take a, take ages like this. So apologies, folks. Apologies, Damien. Um, uh, history, bro, I'm not going to answer that one because we can't talk about other authors. Um, that's not the right thing to do, I don't think. Uh Right, one from AD. Damien, what's the next book to film project? Yeah, I see it, yeah. So um, there are a lot, actually. Um, which one's most likely to come out first? Probably, um, if you've read... Um, do I have it to hand? You've read Churchill's Secret Warriors? This I, one? I haven't, but... That one there. So that's the story about... Um, it's the earliest days of the SAS and the SBS. It's really, though, about Anders Lassen, the um, the only member of the British SS, SAS ever to win the VC. I mean, Lassen was a Dane, obviously, but he was in the British SAS, SAS. And that's really him and his band of brothers soldiering throughout the war, as you can see, capturing Nazi flags and all the rest of it. Um, that book is being um, developed as a three-movie series by Paramount in the States and Jerry Bookheimer films. And, wow. you know, I've read the most recent script. It's very good. Um, so that's great. Another one, if I can grab the book a second. It's all about Trio, the arms explosives um, detection dog uh, in Afghanistan. The the dog who won the Dickin medal, the animal VC. Um, that That's just an amazing tear jerking. Yeah. That's mm. being developed by um, an Australian film company, and the, the the script writer and the director is a guy who was one of the key actors in Avatar. So, you know, there's any number of them on the cusp of being made. And um, we can't mention the C word, but but it's one of the things holding it up, guys. Because how can you, you know, there's so many film shoots which are literally on ice at the moment because you just can't get on set for all the mm. obvious reasons. It's there's this log jam at the moment, which is so frustrating, but, you know, uh, hopefully they'll, um, they'll get lift off in due course. And, you know, I, I'll be really excited to come back on and talk about them when they do get Chris a place at the premiere. <laughs> Brilliant. i get these perks. So I'm very fortunate. Um, Nims die, the, uh, Gurkha turned SBS mountain climber who climbed, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah all 14 peaks in under six months and made yeah. 14, 8,000 meter peaks. Incredible achievement. Lovely guy. Absolutely lovely. And I've been telling everyone I'm the first person to read his book, <laughs> which isn't far from the truth. I'm, I'm, I got sent an advanced copy, Did you? chuffed to bits, read it in a day. It, it's that fast paced and that well written. Um, good credit to this lad, you know, um, and yeah, it's again. It's this is why I'm so glad I started a podcast because I, I get 
just I just get some you know wonderful treats and uh, I, I thoroughly um, appreciate it so yes thank you um, question here I keep getting asked by 42 um, do we know anything about the feather men yeah if I was to guess at that I it sounds like some sneaky thing that went on in Northern Ireland but or, or... feather men were um, uh, Ralph Fiennes wrote about them um, yes so the feather men were like an ultra covert section of the SAS, if you believe what's written. I mean, F F Ranulph Fiennes wrote his book as fiction, uh, it, but it doesn't particularly read like fiction. So, um, you know, if you want to find, if you want to research into, into them and find out more, read his book. That's a good <coughs> starting point. Um, you know, I think it is called The Featherman. I think that's the name of the book, if, mm. if my memory serves me well. I remember reading it. It's a great book, great read. By the way, so it's Robin Horsfall's Fighting Scared. That's yes. A book. Very good. Yes, I'm yet to read that. As I, was, I think I said to you earlier, I was saying to someone, um, I've got I'm 60 books behind of of the books that I want to read. It's yeah. it's uh, because of the nature of the podcast, having to learn so much about society and where what what's going on in the world. The books tend to be not the things I choose to read, so it's more sociological and and controversial and these tend to be more difficult texts to read and so I get two or three pages and then it's I'm falling asleep um, whereas I, I, I love to read your sort of thing I love memoir I love action I, lo I like military yeah. I like adventure favorite books uh, uh, like the uh, Contiki expedition absolutely incredible Stephen Callahan's 76 days adrift um, yeah read and, and Nim, Nim's book was just amazing um back to the questions oh yeah Ranulph fine sent me a signed copy of his book not not long back which was i thought was really nice of him um yeah, went, yeah. and now just by coincidence i was going to see him speak uh, he spoke in torquay and i think only a gentleman of his accomplishments can have such an, a traditional old english military type humor <laughs> it's it, it was really um hilarious but it was quite near the knuckle he, he said um he said yeah that expedition uh two he said something like yeah that that expedition the two cameramen drowned they were only bbc right <laughs> <laughs> yes very 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 yes very good very good speech really good okay yeah i think we're about there thank you to everyone that's um asking damien to come back on that certainly will be arranged um if you can like and subscribe folks to the channel i think i think a lot of people watch and they love the podcast and they're not actually subscribed so they're probably missing a whole heap um one last question then and think helen hello helen in crete i, I wish i was in crete um yes <laughs> my mind's a bit my mind's picturing warmer climbs now but um the sbs do you have you written much about the cockle shell heroes or has that sort of been other people's ground to tread it's 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 been pretty um heavily written about uh, the cockle shell heroes mission but in terms of you know um sbs and operations in crete that book that, that's where it ends up so it it, it basically starts out with a mission by by the forerunner of the sbs from the uk to north to 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 to, to africa 
to raid Fernando Po. And then it goes through North African campaign. And of course, from North Africa, the SBS are formed and they go all through the Mediterranean, including Crete. And the operations in, on Crete and the Greek islands are some of the most extraordinary of the lot. And the way they team up with the Greek resistance and the Cretan resistance, absolutely fantastic. I think I mentioned last time I was on the show that time when Lassen goes in and raids that German garrison on that island and then sends a message to the commander, the German commander as he's leaving. And it says, if you carry out one reprisal against one of the local, one local civilian, one village, if we hear of anything, we will come back and kill you all. Mm. That's how much Lassen kind of bonded with the locals on the ground. So, yeah, um, Josh, it's a great source on those stories. Have you written much on the Falklands? I can't remember if we discussed no, that. No, never, so. never. No. Not at all, no. Just because there's not been something which has really become obvious to write about, if you know what I mean. Yes. I had a project there on the go. Um, a former Marine, friend, friend of mine for many years, approached me and asked if I'd write his Falkland story, but completely anonymous. He just didn't want anything. He didn't want his name attached to it. And he wanted to tell me what he called the real story like what really went on and the stuff you don't see in the documentary. He said everyone knows when the Sheffield was sunk or when, you know, they took Mount Harriet or, or whatever it might be. He said, but they don't know the things like um, that you opened a door in Port Stanley and the room was piled high with tins, fruit cocktail tins, um, all full bar the juice. So while the men were literally starving to death on the mountains, the, the young Argentine conscripts, their officers back in Stanley, spiking these tins just because they didn't want to drink water, you know, they got fed up with drinking water, they were drinking the juice and then, you know, throwing this food, food away, away to rot. And he, a lot of, a lot of uh, anecdotes he's got about the kind of military angle that you'd never, you know, you, you, you'd never hear. And, the idea was I was going to then speak to somebody in the Falklands and, and speak to somebody on, on the other side yeah, to yeah. get a sort of tri, triumvirate, if that's the right yeah. word. Or, um, and then lo and behold, I asked my friend on the podcast and he said, can't do it, Chris. Can't. I've stopped writing a book, mate. I've stopped writing the notes for you. Um, I've got PTSD. I've, I've had it since 1982. Yeah. And I've just been to see my doctor about it. So... Very interesting. Medals couldn't tell you where they are, Chris. Don't care. Never been to Remembrance. Not all the lads like me don't go to Remembrance. Just we just don't want to, you know, kept, just keep ourselves busy. That's all we can do. Is just always got to keep ourselves busy. So, and and the the interesting thing is he's just like such a strong guy. You know, you he the stories he tell. I mean, he's eighteen years old when he walked up those mountains towards mm -hmm. the en enemy and the, the things, you know, it's just so bloody brave. Well, I mean, I guess us Marines were brave. That's what we did, you know, mm -hmm. but it probably makes it even more um, special to me, really. But yeah, gosh, but the thing he's carried that since 1982, so 40, 40 years almost. Incredible. Yeah, and that's the thing. PTSD diagnosis can come at any time. It can come 10, 20 years after the events. You know, yeah. it's not you suffer the trauma, it triggers, you know, PTSD. It doesn't happen like that. Generally, there's a big time lag, and that's one of the shocking things about it. Yes. And also understanding is that he said 
he came from a father where his a family where his father was just stiff upper lip. That's what men did. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Second World War father just yeah. shut up and dealt with it. And yeah, um, yes, gosh. Right, I'm going to say some thank yous and goodbyes. First one to our special guest, Damien. An absolute pleasure. Um, yes, let's please do, let's do yeah. this again. That's always, mate. Brilliant. On behalf of the podcast, I wish you all the best with the books and sure. the, okay. the film yeah. ad adaptations. Yeah. Let's keep in touch. That will be um, very special for me. To everybody at home, Big love to you all and your families. Look after yourselves. Thanks to all the people in the chat. Thank you for the donations. Thanks for the likes and subscribes. Damien, don't feel you've got to stay on the line because I'm going to play my outro. So I'll say goodbye and we can maybe catch up tomorrow if, if there's anything, if need be. Go and put your feet up. Thank you. Yes, mate. Um, do. Thank you very much. It's that's it. Let's do this again. Thank you, everybody. Yep. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.